podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Before you hear the next great podcast, we'd like to tell you about a new 90-second show which distills everything that President Donald Trump has said in the last 24 hours. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available at wherever you get this podcast. Uh, death totals, our numbers per million people are really uh, very, very strong. We're, we're very proud of the job we've done. Look for a link in this here podcast description or search for What Has He Said Now? in all the usual places. Okay, hello. Can anybody hear me? Is anybody out there? Is anybody listening? Um, I hope so. Uh, we're moving into number seven of the quarantine era. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by John Bruin and Gareth Dobson because uh, I've probably spoken to them more than I've spoken to anyone else in the last couple of months. Um, and it's been an absolute delight. So we talk about foreign players that come to the Premier League, uh, particularly in the 90s, um, uh, and there'll be a few favourites on there, uh, as you can imagine. So uh, without any further ado, um, enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the Whistleblowers, guys. It's uh, quarantine number seven, I believe we're on now. Um, uh, and in keeping with uh, the Groundhog Day element of it, we are joined by our two regulars, Mr. John Bruin. Hello, Martin. Good to have you back, John, and Mr. Gareth Dobson. Hey, mate. Lovely to have you both here. How are you keeping, gentlemen? All good? Uh, yeah, well, um, every week... Uh, feels like the same, and this just adds to my sense of routine. So, uh, yeah, here we are. I'm glad. I'm glad we bring that, Gareth. How are you getting on? How's the South South London, South East London? I it's say. it's pretty much same or same or as, as John was saying. I I think I'm now uh, entirely thankful for this podcast for some semblance of routine. I think I even put some uh, put some trousers on for this one. Oh wow! I can. Yeah. Oh, that, thank you, mate. That means a lot. Um, if we where were we last week? So Brits abroad, we covered. Um, I think that kind of a logical progression would be to look at um, the imports, the foreign imports to the Premier League. Um, and in doing so, it's already sparked a bit of conversation between us in how to format it. Um, John, I'm going to come back to a point that you were you were talking about offline about um, John Jensen, because that was a name I haven't heard in a long time and perhaps quite pivotal to, to all of this. Yeah, um, well, John Jensen, um, well, the, the Premier League started in the summer of 1992. And um, most people will have seen um, John Jensen as the guy who scored a, a fantastic goal in the Euro 92 final for Denmark. Remember, they surprised Europe. Um, yep. And he signed for Arsenal. Uh, and then... Uh, he went on that amazing run of never scoring for Arsenal. In fact, Arsenal fans were making T-shirts. And then eventually, I think he did score. And if I'm correct, in the game that he scored, they actually lost. Now, uh, Sorry, could I quickly interject and just say, so bizarrely, as a Spurs fan, one of the few games I've ever attended at Highbury was that game. Yeah. Uh, it was QPR 1-3-1. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, Jensen scored another, another worldie, but... I had no idea what, what fate brought me to that game, just witnessed that miracle, but there you go. Now, so so John Jensen uh, is, I suppose, uh, I don't know if you really have him these days, but like a sort of cult hero. 
among fans that was just so bad that the fans were sort of loved him. I think the game's got a bit more serious these days, where you perhaps don't have that. <laughs> I think I think fans with social media and stuff like that, you see a bit more an, a nastier side in the, in the grounds. You probably have you've got boo boy types, and then you've got those fans that are just okay. He's got him. Yeah, God love him. He's no good anyway. But 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 John Yes was one of those players, but he had a far more wide ranging impact than that, and that's that's because of the way that he came to the club, uh, and the effect that would eventually have on the Premier League. Now that's because uh, he he was his transfer uh, to um, to Arsenal from uh, from uh, let me find which club he was from. Where was he? Uh, from which club? Bromby. Uh, it was. Uh, yes, it was from Bromby. Yeah, he's a Bromby guy, isn't he? Uh, very much so. Very much a Bromby guy. So he came from Bromby. Is <laughs> you know, and um, but that was using a, an agent called Runa Hauger. Now, uh, one of the one of the things of looking back over the Premier League years is you see how many Norwegian players or Scandinavian players were in the, the Premier League at that time. Now, one of the main drivers of that was, a, was an agent called Rune Hauger. Was that Rune Hauger? Uh, unfortunately, uh, the deal that Arsenal struck for him and uh, an, another player called Pal Leiderson, who was a pretty unsuccessful player, uh, um, signed by George Graham uh, for Arsenal, um, well, was that that deal was uh, let's say the wheels were greased uh, <laughs> that deal, and uh, it turned out that a significant bung, as we used to call it, uh, and it was over four hundred thousand pounds in illegal payments had gone from Runa Halga uh, to George Graham, uh, and I, I believe uh, that it was paid in a suitcase, and it was one of those things where it was passed in a suitcase under a table and then walked off away with. Remember those days when cash was king. Um, but anyway, so what did that precipitate? Arsenal at the time were a leading club. They were perhaps a bit down on their luck compared to 91 and 89. But George Graham was one of the best managers in the country and in fact was the best paid manager in the country. Um, but it all started falling apart for Arsenal around this time and eventually he was sacked uh, in 1995. Uh, and what happened there was uh, eventually, Arsenal, um, uh, who had been built in George Graham's image, which was a fairly solid, you know, 1-0 to the Arsenal team, um, via Bruce Rioch, who, who didn't work out as a manager, turned to Arsene Wenger. And I suppose Arsene Wenger's arrival um, in the summer of 1996, slightly delayed, on, uh, he didn't join right at the start of the 96-97 season, that's pretty much the watershed moment in the Premier League when the Premier League shifted from being pretty much the old first division, uh, given a bit more, given a few sexy dancers and uh, a bit more TV hype, to actually becoming a league uh, which had its own identity. Um, and you know, Manchester United were the, the dominant force, but Arsenal, Arsenal Wenger arrived and then you know made Manchester United change up as well. So, yeah, good old John, John Jensen. Um, not a great player, but someone who had a great impact. Well, yeah, so the, the cultural importance of that, um, you know, that's one... Well, well, we'll come on to a few more players that are definitely cult heroes. Gareth, I, I, there's other ways of looking at it in terms of influence, particularly in the 90s, the kind of players that 
teams were signing wasn't there from Europe because there's you know Italy was perhaps the dominant league uh, but it wasn't entertaining football it was part a lot more strategic a lot more defensive um and and p- perhaps some of the players that were signed for the English game were uh, to to make it I, I don't know I suppose a little bit more entertaining yeah I mean the, I think there was Def's case there, there was that sort of you know, initial dipping of the toe in, in, in the war of the, you know, to use a vernacular time, the, the fancy dance. But I, I was, so I was quite interested by uh, uh, John's, uh, you know, point of that a lot of the Norwegian players turned up for, you know, let's say, uh, financial reasons, because I'd always uh, seen it as a thing where, you know, Scandinavian players were seen as like analog to the British style. You know, there was, there's obviously been a kind of, heritage and links between British football and Scandinavian football, you know, especially with uh, uh, people like Roy Hodgson going over and successfully coaching there. They've seen as, you know, as well as being affordable, they were very, you know, they fit the mould. They were big and tall and strong and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I remember, you know, one of the first Scandinavians, I, I guess, who played regularly was Eric Torsford in goal for um, for Spurs, at, you know, in, in the nineties, played the ninety-one Cup final, and I guess we'll, we'll probably be getting to uh, to uh, someone from a similar part of the world, which is uh, Peter Schmeichel. But oh, yeah. yes, so I, I guess you know one of the ones who turned up um, maybe a little earlier than people remember was actually Dennis Burkamp, who had come off the back of two pretty unsuccessful seasons at Inter Milan. Uh, he had gone from gone from Ajax where he was, you know, uh, a Vanderkinder prodigy. And I think he uh, uh, was in the top three in the Ballon d'Or for uh, a couple of years. Then, oh, went wow. to, uh, then went to Inter and it just didn't work out. Um, and so he was, uh, you know, signed signed for us. So I believe in in that short reoc period as well. So it really was quite a defining couple of uh, years at Arsenal, even though it was quite up and down. And he, you know, I, I, as well as obviously being an absolutely incredible player who you know, helped define a team in a period of the Premier League, it was very interesting because that kind of, that, that number 10 uh, was not, I guess, widely used or, you know, accepted in the Premier League. You know, most, most clubs are still wedded to the 4-4-2. And I remember, you know, he started slowly, he struggled to score, and there was definitely a lot of discussion about, you know, where's his position? Do you play him out wide? Do you, you know, can he be a number nine in this league? And it was almost kind of, you know, refusing to acknowledge that there were other systems and other ways of playing. So him eventually coming through and being so good and so successful, I think was very important. You know, it's, you could probably make very loose comparisons with someone like Matt Letizia, who, again, you know, we talk about why he didn't have that England career and part of the answer was because you know he wasn't obviously able to slot into you know a, a set position in the team it's funny when you look at Bearcamp's maybe his influence as you said when when Wenger came in and and Wenger Wenger had Hoddle essentially doing the same job for him in Monaco didn't he and that kind of was this player that you can everything goes through when you're going forward and and um Bergkamp obviously responding well to that because, you know, he needed the, you know, not the, I suppose he always seemed quite a nervous character, didn't he? He seemed to get someone that was, uh, you know, not necessarily um, full of himself, but he played in a very different way. And, and you could tell from his slow start that that was, it was probably touch and go. 
because I'm sure there was like about what was it, about 10, 15 games where he was like really, really not influential at all. Yeah, John, he, yeah sorry, sorry he didn't score for I think till maybe October, and I think maybe his first goal was in you know the League Cup as well against more opposition, and yeah, it did take a while to get going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he he came in that summer of 1995, and seven and a half million. Uh, he was the biggest name signing of the summer of 95, which was, you know, a bit of a sea change in English football. I mean, just take another example, Aston Villa signed Savo Milosevic. You know, people were looking mm. to the foreign market at that point. Um, if You know, if this hadn't been the first time that uh, foreign players had come to English football. Um, I mean, I, as I said before on this podcast, I got into football in the sort of mid 80s but um, there were a few players that had been around a few years before that had, had come in from European football so Al Buren, Franz Tyson at, at Ipswich um, I think it's Frankie van der Elst played for West Ham and uh, Arsenal had a player called Vladimir Petrovic the, the, these experiments had been made and then just sort of abandoned And uh, but foreign players were you know, you had your Ken Moncow's fairly functional English-style players, but those sort of flair players, um, I suppose, you know, you, obviously Eric Cantona is the, the the outstanding player possibly of the Premier League's first 10 years. But Bergkamp, despite the fact that things hadn't gone that well for Inter, was a, a genuine world name. Um, but he was a bit of a victim of the, of the way that things went in Italian football, which was... You know, they had the foreigner rule. Uh, a lot of the clubs had four or five players pushing for a place, and Italian clubs uh, treated players as expendable. Mm. Um, you know, uh, for Juventus, the dominant team of of the mid nineties in uh, in Syria, seemed to change the forward line every year, as far as I could gather. Um, and the Premier League would eventually be the beneficiary of that. But Bergkamp, as Gareth said, yeah. Um, he's. A, I, I wonder about the influence of Burkamp because he was such a sort of unique player that it's pretty difficult for someone to try and be like Dennis Burkamp. Um, his his talent was was singular um, because he wasn't okay. When you when you flick through YouTube or whatever, you see it was the control and the poise of Burkamp. Now that's 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 a skill that is or a facet that is very difficult, I would imagine, for a footballer to teach himself. So, um, but he, he was a, not a great goal scorer. Um, he was not a great header of the ball. Uh, he wouldn't hit the ball that hard, you would have to say. But what an unbelievable player. That, you know, and um, I, I do wonder, you know, we are 20, 20 years or 25 years, 25 years this summer, in fact, since Dennis Bergkamp arrived, in English football, and you wonder how a player like him would survive in English football now. Uh, you, you make an interesting point there he's, he's t- about his singular skill. I think uh, very much uh, Arsenal's success was tied to the the, the other signings that followed. Um, and you know, Mark Overmars was a player that you know he knew well from Holland and came over and had a massive impact in his first season. And you know, when Arsenal went on to win the league, um, it's like 97, 98. And, and having players like that around him, um, 
Yeah, yeah. He, and knew, I, he, he knew how to play with and just and pace. You know, I mean, turning bad balls into good. Not that any any of his balls were bad, but you know, just in terms of play attacking play, it just opened it up. You're totally right. It'd be interesting to see. I mean. Y- he wouldn't be a Letizia because you couldn't put him at Southampton and then ask him to drag a team up on his own because you know he, he. But in terms of his his ability, you know that's the kind of um, caliber of play you talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when he was at Ajax, you know, he was as a teenager, seventeen, eighteen. He was good enough to play for the first team, but they put him in as a right winger with Marco van Basten and players like that. He he was that good. Um, but yeah, but I suppose Burkamp is is one of those players. There was something of this in the nineties in the Premier League was that they that a lot of the players that ended up in England were supremely talented players, but this, there was a slight sort of reject second hand status about them. Um, Eric Cantona had failed to make it at Marseille, you know, the the um, richest club in France. Burkamp uh, shipped out by. Into Milan, uh, Palmer shipped out Gianfranco Zola. Uh, Viali ended up at Chelsea when Juventus had, 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 had their use out of him. Um, even Patrick Vieira, you know, who arrived at, I think, as uh, well, he'd be a 20, 20 year old, um, with the same age, in fact. Um, he, he failed to uh, do much at AC Milan, having joined them from Con. And there was this point where the, the Premier League was some sort of receptacle for, for players who were great, but w- w- whose careers had gone a bit awry um, in the in the bigger leagues over in Europe. Well, I'd, I'd throw in one name there, though, that perhaps is uh, uh, maybe an anomaly to that, but um, um, maybe you can correct me. Uh, Gareth, one uh, uh, played for your club, uh, D- David Ginella. Yeah, so he... I, I was thinking about Ginella. He, he's very interesting in the sense of he almost typifies that period where the Premier League did become a lot glitzier and more exciting. And you know, I, I think that it was quite fitting that he found his first and natural home up in Newcastle where, you know, that sort of player is always naturally going to be revered by the fans and especially, you know, an ardent fan base that I think, you know, particularly loves that that kind of player who brings sort of fancy and excitement. And uh, actually, we were talking about early, uh, you know, non-British players, I, my mind uh, did swing to Mirandina at uh, Newcastle yeah, yeah. in the, uh, in yeah, the yeah. early 80s. So that, that's interesting. But he, it, it, it's kind of difficult with Juno because supremely talented. He won the um, PFA, uh, was it PFA or Sports Rights Player of the Year? Um, he, won, he won them both. Did he win them both in that year? And it was... He won it at Spurs uh, in 98-99 when uh, Manchester United won the treble. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think it was, you know, Alex Ferguson's complete fury at this decision. But it was, (laughs) it was, it was, it was a split vote really because it could have been Roy Keane. It it probably should have been David Beckham. It probably should have been, you know, you name it. From that's Yapstam, you name it. I mean, the, the joke was that uh, Ginola, you know, uh, basically won that award off the back of a goal against Barnsley. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that's a little unfair. He was fantastic that season. Um, yeah, Ginola, again, though, um, he'd been the sort of prince of PSG. Um, but I think, I think I'm correct in saying that um, 
they decided to move on and make other players their sort of kingpins rather than him. Um, yes. Yeah. No, sorry, I, I say no. And also another player who was in the international wilderness because um, oh, of course, he, yes. Gerard Hulia blamed him. That's right. France's inability, uh, failure to qualify for the 1994 World Cup. He, I think, he gave the ball away against Bulgaria in a qualifier, the final right. game. They yes. didn't. Uh, they didn't win or they lost, and um, that was his uh, his career over with. Uh, I don't think he ever played for France again. But the yeah, the the I guess my biggest issue with Ginola when you talk about impact is that it's hard to kind of show what material impact he had on the league. He didn't win any uh, trophies while he was in uh, England, I don't think. Um, he, he won the uh, League Cup with Tottenham, I think, in Oh, in, uh, yeah, nice time with the... How the could you Wilson forget? Well. Yeah. Uh, because I was at university and I don't remember very much. <laughs> It was, that was a very strange game. We beat Leicester, and that was the yeah. Robbie Savage, Justin Edinburgh affair, wasn't it? That game? Yeah. So yes, apologies, David. Apologies, uh, Spurs. But yeah, it's he. He was one of the ones. I think if you were, uh, he almost kind of uh, typifies what people felt about you know foreign fancy footballers. He was almost the epitome of that. You know, brilliantly talented, mercurial. Another great word we love. Um, I, yeah, he struggled to get my list of the most impactful beyond sort of media profile and a couple of nice hair adverts. Well, let's go to that list then. So yeah, we're talking about impactful, um, but perhaps someone who's but actually let's 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 take a break here and we'll, we'll pick it up exactly uh, where we left off, and and you can you can take it through impactful in part two. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. All right, guys, so uh, welcome back. Um, Gareth, we were talking about players that had the biggest impact in the Premier League off the back of Ginola, who, you know, questionable in terms of, you know, delivering trophies uh, beyond a League Cup. Let's not forget that. But, um, but yeah, another Spurs player that, that you were waxing lyrical about when we were talking about um, making this the theme, a German. Yes. the uh, It's still maybe the best player I've I've seen play at Spurs. I, I was a little... Uh, uh, wasn't around for Waddle and Huddle so much. So, I mean, when when Jurgen Klinsmann uh, signed for uh, Spurs off the back of you know a successful World Cup '94 where he'd scored five six goals, um, and you know he was he was you know in his prime, he was 29 years old, um, and Spurs were fighting a six point deduction by the FA as well for financial irregularities to um, you know. Hawk, 
hark back to a, a previous topic. Um, the idea of him coming Spurs seems absolutely absurd, but uh, lo and behold, it happened. It, I think it did turn out that he didn't actually have many options on the table. And I think he was also, he was at Monaco. He was being paid very well. Monaco is obviously a, a tax haven as well. So uh, whatever you're earning, you keep a lot more of it than in other places. And he was, I, you know, he was one of the first players to come to Premier League with a huge international profile uh, and a you know, huge international reputation, you know, as someone who uh, took to the ground uh, when he needed to, but, uh, you know, in his prime and, and had won, had won trophies, you know, he, he'd won the World Cup, he'd won the, the UEFA Cup, I think he'd won the league with Inter Milan. Um, it's, you know, a, a hell of a thing and his impact was huge. And yeah, it was one of the first times where, you know, a real, you know, name superstar came and also delivered. Um, I think maybe kind of uh, almost proof of that was, you know, he performed so well that, you know, nine months later, he was uh, doing a laugh on and pitch waving off. Uh, he was back off to Bayern Munich, which, um, you know, it's an interesting redemption story because they, I'm sure he would have signed for them happily, uh, you know, the summer before, but they, you know, absolutely weren't interested. So, you know, quite a redemptive story for him. And, you know, there, there's a nice arc because when he left, it was quite a bitter, uh, it's quite a, you know, acrimonious departure, certainly in terms of Alan Sugar who uh, you know made a big show in an interview with a uh, with a, a Klinsman shirt he'd been given, saying he wouldn't wash his car with it, um, and then railing against Carlos Kickerballs because um, Spurs had you know signed uh, three or four uh, international players that summer, and not too many ultimately panned out. Uh, and then he returned a couple of years later to save Spurs from relegation and to pull uh, Christian Gross's ill-fated team's uh, foul out of the fire. So. It was it was a nice way to round it off, and it was that was basically the end of his uh, his his real football in playing career as well. So it, it did end nicely, but yeah, it, that that was a really huge moment I think for the Premier League when it realised it could still attract and afford these players, and also they they could have a big impact on the field, and you know possibly it made uh, made other clubs you know want to go out and find their own superstars. Very much so. I uh, who was who were the other players alongside him in that Ozzy Ardiles attacking five? The the front five, uh, as well as Sheringham, Anderton, and Barnby, uh, it was uh, uh, two Romanian players who were so brilliant at that '94 World Cup. Um, Ili Dumitrescu played out left, and then Jika uh, Popescu, who was a sweeper, but was then converted to a sort of central holding midfielder for Spurs and. Yeah, he, he he performed pretty well. He played for a year, and you know, it, he had uh, scored a big winning goal against Arsenal in a in a in a derby, and then actually found his way to Barcelona, where he played for a couple of years, which is, you know, not too many. That that transition hasn't happened too many times. Um, although Dimitrescu must be said wasn't fancied very much by uh, uh, our replacement, Jerry Francis, who shipped him out on loan to Sevilla pretty much straight away, and. Essentially, Dimitrescu never played for Spurs again, uh, which is the next scene turning up at West Ham for a short period. That's right. That's right. I mean, there's always been this idea of of trends of players. So we had the the, the Scandiwegians, and then we had, um, I don't know, there's Italians, of course. Uh, but the Romanians were uh, briefly quite popular, weren't they? Because you had Dan mm-hmm. Petrescu over at Sheffield Wednesday. Oh, Petrescu, some player. What? Yeah. I mean, good player. 
yeah, consistency. And again, one of those names that you just um, is, is synonymous with the, the Premier League uh, back in the 90s. Yeah, and, and Raddy Choi went to West Ham a little less successful. He was a very talented player. Uh, he'd gone from AC Milan. Um, and I think, is, is, was he the player that went off to Harvey Nicks rather than play? Uh, you know, a classic <laughs> Harry Redknapp story. Uh, so, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you had this thing, didn't you, where um, you'd have, as I said, the, the Premier League would be a bit of a sort of uh, a, a second chance for a few players. But then beyond the top clubs, you would have clubs like um, West Ham or Southampton or whatever who would pick up the, the, the offcuts of that. And it would end up with players like Dumitrescu. There was that point, wasn't there? It just became, uh, you know, which which nationality am I team going to sign this this weekend, you know, or this <laughs> summer? And so you read the season previews, and it would be people from all, all over the world. Um, one player I, I, I wanted to pick out, or two players actually, uh, and you know, uh, African football um, has influence has continued since these players arrived um, and I would also include Peter Unlove as we pronounced it, I yeah. won't attempt the Zimbabwean pronunciation at Coventry but um, Lucas Radaby and Tony Yeboah um, at, at Leeds um, and I mean Lucas Radaby was a fantastic player for, uh, for, for Leeds for quite a long time but Tony Yeboah made that that real impact with his with his goals. I'm not sure that it, it, it didn't really last that long for him, but um, you know he he was one of those uh, true cult heroes, isn't he? And you know uh, no no Premier League uh, montage is complete without every <laughs> Boa blast. And um, so African players who previously uh, you would suggest uh, had been. Uh, not being Premier League clubs hadn't looked towards that. That was a new market as well, and from that point on, they've been a big part of um, of the Premier League. Not yeah, there. and uh, I, I would say with, with you, Bo, one of the things that people don't necessarily always remember that uh, in brilliant goal was followed up by was it one against Wimbledon? You know, similarly incredible was only a week apart at best. He scored, uh, you know, these two absolute, you know, thunder blasters in the space of a short amount of time, and it was absolutely incredible. Um, that, 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 I believe that actually that relationship ended very acrimoniously ultimately with uh, um, Yabo. I think throwing down his shirt at a uh, at his away at an away game at Spurs, which uh, hastened his departure. Um, yeah, but while yeah, it lasted, yeah. it was incredible. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, and as I said, I think you know, Lucas Radaby was, you know, is probably regarded. Uh, I mean, he only played forty-seven league games for Leeds, Yubara, but um, Lucas Radaby played, you know, for seven or eight years and was, you know, and opened the gates for, for other players uh, from from Africa. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I've mentioned him ahead of this, but. Uh, you, you talked to him before. Um, you mentioned him, uh, Peter Schmeichel. Um, influential players. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this. He is influential in a certain sense, but are there many goalkeepers who play like Peter Schmeichel these days? Um, 
again, I think he was almost like a unique talent. Obviously, his son, Kasper Schmeichel, plays a bit like him. And the distribution with the hand, the hand, you know, that, mm. that was a part, I mean, it was a big part of him just launching the ball at Ryan Giggs, Lee Sharp, Andre Kachelskis, and setting United off on that, that flowing football that they used to play in that time. Um, but as a goalkeeper, there haven't really been many, there's been a few that have attempted to be like him, but he is, there are no goalkeepers now that you could really compare to him, could you? He's... His style was just, uh, I mean, he was, he, they used to say that he was quite good with the ball at his feet. I suspect he would struggle in, in, in today's football. Mm. I remember making a couple of mistakes like that. But it was the shot stopping that was Schmeichel and the domination and the the personality. And a personality, actually, that um, uh, it's fair to say that in, in the various Man United uh, biographies, including those of Alex Ferguson and Roy Keane, I wouldn't say he was the most popular player in the <laughs> Manchester United dressing room. A very singular character. Um, but even, you know, 25 years on or whatever, uh, I really don't think there's been a better goalkeeper in English football than Schmeichel. I, I, Sorry, go on, Gareth. No, uh, for me, one of the kind of... He had one of the most memorable single goalkeeping performances, which was a, you know, a crunch uh, you know, title game between... Uh, Manchester United and Newcastle at St James's Park. Um, you know, in that period where you know, I think Newcastle were, uh, you know, they were clear by a large margin, and uh, Manchester United ended up winning that game one 0 with a, a Cancelar goal. But um, you know, Schmeichel made a number of brilliant one-on-one saves against Les Ferdinand, and you could see by the end, you know, had just psychologically absolutely dominated. Uh, opposition, he got to the point where they're like, Well, it doesn't matter how many times we go through and go against this guy, he's going to stop it all. And that sort of infamous star jump block he, he would do coming out, and you know, suddenly these four octopus limbs would sort of come out and just make the goal seem tiny. Um, and I, you know, I'd never seen anything like that, you know, it, it, when you talk about his star, and that was absolutely sensational, you know, the uh, the red nose of the shouting, he he was like a uh. And not so many uh, Ferguson on the pitch. Yeah, uh, I, I was going to say, I, I, I get the impression that, um, that the real goalkeeper, technical type, sort of say he was a bit showy. Like he, he but the fact is, his sort of physical attributes meant that he could be showy and still cover all the angles that perhaps wouldn't be possible for, for for other goalkeepers. I mean, I used to, you know, stand or sit on the Stratford end, and you know, occasionally, say Steve Bruce or Gary Pallister would let. Yeah, a forward through, and I was always felt fairly secure that on one on one, Schmeichel would smother the goalkeeper, yeah. the, the attacking player, just because having him run towards you. I mean, Martin, you can uh, probably speak to this. Having someone like Peter Schmeichel run towards you when you've got a finish, and how how would that feel? Like? Well, it's interesting that the, the the point you make there when you talk about you got Bruce and Pallister to get through. So with United, I would imagine being a player that got through, you get past the midfield. If you get past the centre-halves, by the time you get to Schmeichel, you're already a nervous wreck because you're probably only going to get one chance a game, maybe. And then when you get through against him, then you've got someone coming out. And I always felt that, you know, the the, the bright green kit, it just made him look even bigger. You know, it just... uh, Yes. 
this is imposing, but also the personality to go with it. They are single-minded goal. Those goalkeepers from that age, they are they are a different beast. I think you know, you look at Oliver Kahn, you look at um, even Seaman. You know, they had this weird sort of p- big personalities, but also you know, and even back to Shelton, we spoke about him last week. Just slightly odd characters, but in a dressing room, you can that aloofness sometimes is your, is part of your strength. Because people don't quite know, you know, you, you, don't be the nice guy, and certainly not if you're a goalkeeper, because you've got to build up that sort of psychology behind it. So, yeah, I, I mean, he was always imposing, and the, you know, the, the flip side is your your big quiet guys, your Tim Tim Crows, Edwin Van der Sar, guys that are just like it doesn't matter how far you put it in the corner, they're going to find another another foot to get there, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Van der Sar obviously came, arrived a bit later, uh, but is almost a contemporary. But yeah, it is was just a, you know, you might say he was almost as good a goalkeeper for for Manchester United, yeah. Michael. But uh, he, he didn't have the star quality really, and uh, you know, uh, I, I interviewed Andrew Van der Sar, very nice guy actually, but a really understated character. Yeah. Um, but also, but funny enough, actually, I, I've seen him. But also, someone with a winning mentality, you could tell there's a hard edge to him, but it didn't reveal itself in quite the theatrical fashion that Schmeichel had. Well, let's look at and the numbers. I mean, you're 112 clean sheets in 252 games. You know, that's uh, that's and, and a lot down to the United players in front of him, but still uh, terrifying, terrifying numbers for any striker. Uh, I, I just move into a slightly different area of the world that, um, that threw up a couple of interesting players in the 90s from an Aston Villa tour of the West Indies and Graham Taylor picking up Dwight York on a trial after playing them in a friendly and um, bringing him back. And Dwight York always seems, again, quite uh, you're just part of the furniture of the 90s Premier League. Uh, but you forget that, you know, he's come halfway around the world and, and kind of impressed after, you know, probably bedding himself in in a couple of steady seasons at Villa. Um, and then, you know, I don't think he made any threat. What was it John Gregory said about him? He was like, if I'd had a gun, I would have shot him when he went in and asked if he could leave to Man United. Yeah, and and, and I think the thing about Dwight York is that um, he was underestimated by quite a lot of Manchester United fans. It was, if you remember that summer of 1998, uh, Clivert was the talk um, and Clivert had been, Clivert would be a... Well, he was born seventy six, so he'd be a you know twenty two year old Wunderkind striker. You know, he yeah. scored the winner in the Champions League final as as a teenager. It hadn't quite worked out for him in Italy, but still, you know, this was a this was a real you know top player. But yeah. instead, Ferguson turned to Dwight York. Um, Twelve and a half million was the fee, twelve point eight something like that. And yeah. um, if 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 Dwight York's career had finished. At the end of the ninety-eight, ninety-nine season, uh, you know, you would you would consider him an all-time Manchester United great. I think right. one of his problems yeah. was that he probably faded a little bit after that. But but the thing that he did do was that he his his ability to link play. He was yeah. a supreme header of the ball. Um, and remember when Graham Taylor brought him in, he sort of played as a bit of a winger. But um, he he just had that poise uh, and uh, game intelligence and the funny thing is actually later on in his career when he played for Roy Keane at Sunderland Roy put him in at at centre midfield because he just had that ability to play almost anywhere on the pitch 
uh, people underrate his ability. Um, yeah. And also, and another player, uh, and a player who played always with a smile on his face. He simply enjoyed himself. Yeah. The ball, the ball was a hallmark of that with him with Andy Cole was the ball never stopped. You know when you see like sometimes you see Aguero and players that have that explosive power that they can walk up to defend and push it to the right and back. Those guys just the ball was always moving and they were always moving with the ball or off the ball and they must yeah. have been a nightmare to play because they were always on because the both of them were just their the movement. You you know you always come back to that link up play in the Barcelona game and you're just thinking. You know how how would you go about marking them? And then you know, you know, any criticism of Andy Cole, I always find hilarious because I'm just like this guy is just he was just a born goal scorer and he was always in the right positions, you know, and and he, he could have been as good as you wanted him to be. It's just he was surrounded by brilliant other English strikers at the time. Yeah, and and uh, you, you forget also that Andy Cole made himself into a, a great all round player as well. He converted his game. Mm. Worked very hard at it, but it was with Dwight York that he, he really became, a, you know, a, a, a top player. Um, but yeah, Dwight York is is not a catalyst because he played a big part himself. But he scored twenty nine goals when United won the treble. Mm. Brilliant player. Um, but as you said, you know, people forget that he arrived uh, to Begin, I think, isn't he? Um, yeah. he? He arrived over and just settled in, and I think. Uh, it, but the impression I get is that, OK, maybe Ferguson had his fill of him and I think that him and Graham Sooners didn't get on well. Uh, that wouldn't, He wouldn't be alone in that. But a bit <laughs> of a manager's dream because I remember Ron Atkinson uh, was a big fan of him as well. Um, yeah, um, Dwight York. And, 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 and I'm glad you brought him up because he's almost a slightly forgotten figure because he's almost was part of the furniture for exactly. so long. That's it, absolutely. Gareth, who else you got in your list for uh, influential? Um, so the, the the triplets of uh, the three big signings that came into Middlesbrough. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Charlie, was that 1995 or a little later? Uh, Janine? Nice. Well, Sorry. yeah, if I may, you're going to say Janino. Uh, Ravinelli and Emerson, is that right? Oh, yeah. Emerson, what a player. Love that. Indeed. Yes. Um, Janino, Janino came in the season before, 95-96. And uh, remember there was that tournament which preluded uh, Euro 96. It was called, what was it called? The Umbro Cup. Yeah. And uh, Janino was the, the, the hot new Brazilian player. And then for him to end up at Middlesbrough, was quite amazing. It really was, um, uh, and uh, yeah, he he, uh, you know, um, he, I mean, I, I remember chatting to um, a friend of mine's father who would have been about eighty-five at the time, and uh, I asked him who his favourite Middlesbrough players were. He's a Middlesbrough fan, and he said Wilf Mannion and Janino. So, um, <laughs> so that that's, that those are players playing forty years apart. So. There you go. Brilliant. Go on, Gareth. Sorry, you were... You were... No, it's just... Uh, yeah, it, it really reminded me of the uh, the sort of air of disbelief and excitement similar to the, the Clemson signing. There was this just that sense of... So this player who's meant to be one of the great young players in the world has, has signed for Middlesbrough. Um, <laughs> and yeah, 
there's always, I think, a thing that, well, this isn't going to last long. Let, let's see how it goes. And, you know, it, it, it was genuinely for Juninho a, a love affair. He, you know, he played for the club three, on three separate occasions, including, uh, you know, he did help them win their first ever piece of silverware as well, uh, which, you know, is, is obviously if you're a, a fan of any club, that's something you'll, you'll remember forever. And, um, you know, he, I, obviously there was that sense of, uh, well, he's, he's Brazilian, he's a midfielder, so he's going to be, you know, this sort of fancy, fair weather, won't like it up and midfielder. But, you know, obviously as well as being supremely talented, he he was a very hardworking, you know, a very slight player, but he was tough and, you know, he got up and down the pitch. He, he put a lot of work in and, you know, he was, well, it goes for saying he was the complete package, but he was an all-round midfielder who, you know, could do most facets of the game and, you know, did bring that element of, you know, flair and excitement. And, you know, obviously, you know, in the second season, uh, took Middlesbrough to two, uh, to uh, cup finals, obviously, which they both lost. And then almost preposterously, they were relegated uh. in a season where Fabrizio Ravinelli came in, scored 31 goals, That's including insane. a hat-trick on his debut against Liverpool. Yeah, um, and then still, somehow they've managed to, uh, yeah, to get to get uh, relegated. You know, in part because of um, their decision not to play a match because they had a you know a huge and crippling injury list. But rather than um, you know make the arrangements or even just take the defeat, they just did not turn up for the game against Blackburn Rovers. And the points deduction they they then subsequently got is what relegated them. That's so, insane. I forgot that. What a story. That's crazy. That's it's absurd. So popper stuff, isn't it's, it? It's and, and uh, the idea that you know a club could make that decision unilaterally <laughs> and then not be someone, you know, uh, the uh, you know uh, Mil- chairman um, Gibson. No, uh, it was Gibson. Yes, you, you would think you know. So he he obviously you know was sitting there listening to Brian Robson go yeah no you you're sure that makes sense makes sense let's force out let's just not turn up and it'll be fine like at which point does your chairman or whoever just say I think you need to go and play the game it doesn't matter just just turn up just you know put out as as Robson said if if he'd known about the points deduction he would have played the tea ladies <laughs> I, I, I I I used to be a colleague of Robbie Musto. Uh, Many years ago, and he was a um, he was one of the well, he was one of those players who uh, I think missed well, well, obviously, none of them played in the game, but um, was one of those on the injury list. And I said to him, uh, I mean, this was actually recorded, so you know, uh, I don't think I'm breaking anything, but I said, you know, he said that yeah, there were a few players that were sort of borderline but probably could have played, but you know, they decided. That they were going to say they were all injured and stuff like that, and uh, and I said, "Were you one of them?" And he was just like, uh, "I'm not saying anything." So uh, he, he was, yeah, it, it was a, a, a incredible, really. And it just the thing is about that Middlesbrough team is that a, mo- a lot of their games, it seemed, were like that three, opening three all with Liverpool, just utter yeah. chaos. It was like just these are the players out they go. Let, let's play and you know Emerson um, who looked amazing by the way yeah uh, who looked you know was obviously a, a talented player but he he burned out pretty quickly uh, and really didn't, it didn't do that much and it, it towards by the end of the season 
I mean, there was a, there was a sort of dichotomy of uh, well, the, the, the huge comparison you were making of Middlesbrough that you would have Juninho twinkling across the field and passing to Phil Stamp. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like this sort of weird amalgam of sort of uh, like almost like a Jamie Pollock or something like like a sort of rugby league players and uh, <laughs> and these these you know the, these stars and R- Ravenelli, um well um, I, I don't think I mean he scored all those goals I don't think he really made a positive impression no. uh, in, in that and he was the highest paid player in the, in the, the Premiership as we called it then. Um, and you know scored an awful lot of goals, but um, again he, he he was he he embodied this this idea that that, that the um, almost like the Chinese league kept was a couple of years ago that the Premier League was another place where what was a place where players could go and earn loads of money, um, and I think uh, probably he misjudged it. And but funny thing is he did come back and play for Derby for a little while, so yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but Ravenelli is is one of those that was a bust, despite the fact that he, he scored all those goals. Because you compare him to uh, Gianluca Viali, who you know eventually made England his home, uh, and then Gianfranco Zola, who you know is still revered as you know despite all that success as possibly the best Chelsea player of all time. Um, he, he just he just completely misjudged uh, what what English football was about. Um, and and that's possible. I mean, you know, if you come from uh, Italy and you move to Middlesbrough, I imagine it's quite a culture shock. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, And I think that's, uh, you're right, there's all the one about him being the best Chelsea player ever. I I found one of the the classier things to come out of the... um, that era, because he's not a traditional Chelsea player, perhaps. So he was one that kind of maybe brought in the new era um, with with just a, a certain dif- different class and another player that loved playing with a smile on his face. Um, gents, we've, ru- we've run out of time this week. I think uh, there's probably loads more we could talk about in that, but um, but maybe we can have a look at the managers or, or uh, other pl- other guys from the, the 90s, or we can move into foreign imports of the 2000s let's have a chat about that but um but thanks for joining me uh, uh, are you um what are you working on at the minute john i uh, just came off come off a few days of work uh what should, what should i recommend to the listeners uh the mark lanigan book uh have you read this or have you no. heard of um i've read i've read enough excerpts for it to have been on the amazon order yes it looks absolutely sensational yeah it's it, it's uh I wouldn't say fun because it's basically tales of smack and crack addictions and uh, you know and a lot of death, but it's also a complete hoot. So um, I, I don't, so yeah, it's it's a great book. Mark Lanigan, singer of the Screaming Trees, great solo artist, um, who oddly follows me on Twitter, even though huh. I must admit that I've never really listened to his records. So there you go. On but one Lovely. day, Mark Lanigan followed me. So. I, I don't quite think I, don't, I wonder what he makes of my complete dribbling <laughs> but there you go <laughs> Gareth what, uh, what have you been up to the music is the music biz still uh, in full full tilt or in digital tilt yep still going uh, very much uh, people are sort of getting back into it now and had a bit of a bit of time to work out what's going on in the world and yeah now it's it's time to start uh, sort of making recent records and finding other ways to promote them that aren't there aren't live shows because they're not probably not going to happen for a little while. So 
uh, yeah, it's time to be uh, creative with stuff. I'll yeah. let you know how it goes. Yeah, keep us posted. All right, gents. Well, listen, I, I hope that we can reconvene next week. But um, thanks very much for joining me. Um, that was your whistle, boys. Wasn't that a great podcast? Now, if you've got 90 seconds spare in your day, come and listen to ours. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available wherever you got this podcast. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.